Hello, you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durrant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. My name is Georgina Durrant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners with SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dog or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining in. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Claudia Matasowska to discuss the intersection between LGBT plus and SEND. Claudia is an Associate Lecturer in Education, Inclusion and SEND at the University of Derby. She also works as a researcher at Goldsmiths University of London. She is a doctoral student in the Department of Educational Studies at Goldsmiths University of London. Her research centres around LGBT plus inclusion with pupils with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. Claudia has a previous experience of more than 16 years working as an SEN practitioner in schools in London. Prior to her PhD studies, she held a leadership position managing the behaviour and attitudes area in an SEN school in London. Wow, Claudia, that's very, very impressive introduction. How are you? I am good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I think it's such an interesting topic. I'd be really excited about um, meeting you and chatting with you about this. So I'd love to start, if we can, with learning more about your background in SEND. Can you tell me about your career so far? I know we've touched on it a little bit, but if you could give us some more details, and in particular, why you're so passionate about supporting children with special educational needs and disabilities. Um, So I started my um, SEN career um, about um, two decades ago really I first yeah. started as an au pair working with children who had autism and then I went into um, my first school-based job um, uh, where I worked as a teaching assistant in an SEN school for about eight years before I uh, went uh, to study for my PGCE qualification to become a teacher mm-hmm. so basically my whole SEN sorry my whole professional background is in SENT yeah and um, um, I worked as a teacher for about seven years, and then I made the decision to go into academia and pursue my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so just given my overall experience as an SN practitioner, that's what inspired me to want to do a PhD in yeah. the area of SENT, but um, also in the, in particularly in the last few years of my career as an SEM practitioner I work with children and young people with LGBT plus identities yep and that's when I realized that actually there wasn't that much information no. or not even I would say there wasn't enough substantial information about LGBT scent um, um, plus intersection and I wanted some answers and so that's what inspired me to actually um, do my own study on a PhD level and I'm hoping that uh, my PhD thesis work uh, one day will be um, a good tool or a source of information for other senior practitioners who are trying to find uh, appropriate ways to um, um, establish LGBT plus inclusion for learners with SENT in an effective way. 
Yeah, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? If they can then use that as like a starting point to provide sufficient support, that would be fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit more about this PhD? Because it sounds so interesting. Your thesis is on LGBT inclusion with children and young people with um, SEND. Can you go into a bit more detail? Obviously, I know a, a thesis is huge, so you don't... <laughs> summarising it into a few minutes is tough. But yeah, could you give us a few more details about it? Sure. So um, um, some of the key areas that I'm basically... Um, focusing on through my PhD work um, is to do with um, LGBT plus inclusion for students who um, are um, experiencing um, gender identity exploration yeah. periods and um, um, I'm looking into um, the ways that um, SM practitioners can support them in a better way. Yeah. Um, then I'm also looking at the area of PDA, pathological yeah. demand avoidance as well, which is um, um, a scent area that is less explored or less known um, um, amongst SN practitioners um, compared to some other scent areas. Yeah. And um, I'm looking at the intersections of PDA, gender development, and also childhood as well. Wow. And obviously, I'm looking at sexuality yeah um so i'm looking at that aspect when it comes to teenagers um young people with scent and um um you know the overlap uh between um neurodivergence basically and uh, lgbt plus concept yeah. because there is a lot of that there yeah, so yeah. these are some of the key areas i'm looking at um wow. I'm um, trying to factor in, obviously, the voice of the ASEAN practitioners as well. Yeah. And um, just um, basically combining the practical side with um, with the research that is out there. So looking at it from an academic angle as well and somehow bringing all that together. Wow, what a big project. When, when, have you, when should you have finished it then? How long have you got to go with it? So I've got, uh, I am now in my second full-time year. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably um, a couple of years or something like that. Yeah, I would say it will be the the completion period. Ho hopefully next year. <laughs> That's the fastest I, so. I could do it in. Yeah, uh, but uh, other than that, maybe two years from now. Yeah. Probably. Wow, it's such a, a a big area, I imagine, to to yes. study. So really, really important as well. Um, if we think about what you said about how you hope that sort of your PhD thesis will then be sort of the starting point for teachers to provide better support. Um, for LGBT plus students who have special education needs and disabilities as well. What training do you think teachers need to better support and include these learners? What should they be doing? I know you interviewed as part of your um, as part of your PhD, you've interviewed SEN practitioners regarding inclusion of LGBT plus um, kids. What did you find? Um, so some of the key things that I found is that they generally feel that there isn't that much uh, information yeah. um, provided to them. And um, actually, um, most of them, you know, have that positive attitude. They want to be obviously inclusive in their practice and they yeah. want to uh, give um, um, good enough um, source of information to the learners, which is one of the key aspects of their role as educators. But sometimes they feel they don't have that available anywhere yeah and um, what uh, happens as well um, you know they 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 look for information um, in the outside sources sources if you like 
So um, um, when they were talking to me, they were saying that they wish um, there was more guidance in the policies, yeah. more guidance about how to make the curriculum more inclusive. Yeah. So um, what often tends to happen is that um, schools do invite, you know, trainers um, from the outside, if you like, to come in and offer these LGBT plus workshops, um, which is great. But actually, there is that sense of, you know, gender and sexuality not being fully embedded yeah everyday school culture I feel like yeah almost like it's an add-on event or someone's coming in to talk about it but and then it stops and we go back to normal rather than it being woven into stuff into the everyday life yeah and it shouldn't really be about the you know old LGBT plus assembly or the old LGBT plus lesson here and there it should be really part of the everyday school life everyday community so it's it's basically them seeking guidance on uh, how to um, embed the yes. uh, LGBT plus concepts into the curriculum, into the policy, into the environment around them. All of these um, things need to be considered. Yeah, and I suppose there's the danger as well if people are trying to find out information themselves that they're not getting the most reliable information from like trusted sources as well. I know teachers are, are, are professionals and they're good at finding trusted sources, but there is still that danger, isn't there? If there's not a lot of information out there on the internet to help you support children that you might not choose the, the, the right thing or the best thing for the kids. Absolutely, and it leads to uncertainty. And yeah. I suppose, you know, um, the, the fear that they may have about saying the wrong thing Mm-hmm. Uh, you know still main uh, is still maintained within them yeah they don't feel like they have a proper guidance to to go on or not sufficient enough guidance and um, sometimes um, to be fair to schools what makes things difficult is that uh, the department for education uh, in the case of primary schools have given uh, advice on uh, making a relationship and sex education lgbt plus inclusive only as um, something that they would advise rather than require, as they did right. in the case of secondary schools. Yeah. So that puts primary schools and the staff in a difficult situation mm. uh, because um, now they have to justify, let's say, to parents uh, yeah. why the LGBT plus inclusive approach they're taking is the right one. Yeah. And when you think about children with disabilities and young people with disabilities, the general assumption often is that they are sexual you know, yeah. they as childlike, they often infantilized, really. So that uh, concept, that aspect makes it even more hard, uh, m- more harder for the schools to have, have to justify everything. Yeah, that's really um, hard, isn't it? Especially if they're all yeah. having to be justifying it rather than it being an overall, um, yeah, and it being all overall guidance. That's really, really hard. So what if a teacher, well, there will be teachers listening. I keep saying this on, on the podcast, like if a teacher is listening, I do know teachers do definitely listen. So um to the teachers that are listening, um, if they're thinking, what can they do tomorrow when they go back into school? Not, to, yeah, presuming they're listening on a on a weekday, um, to make a difference to like inclusivity of LGBT plus kids in their setting. What what would you recommend? What can they just start doing? So I think one of the um, key things that they could um, start doing is. Um, accepting the fact that lots of um, children with scent, especially autism, will will not think of um, uh, sexuality and um, uh, gender identity in binary terms. And right. what I mean by that, 
they they will um, think of it probably more um, in fl more fluid terms. Certainly, when it comes to gender identity, yeah. So they they might obviously might be aware of the fact that you know there are um, um, you know there are certain genders you know, either you know assigned the female or the male the gender at birth, but actually for them it might be like well, you know, I'm not really thinking of myself in terms of being female or male. I'm just thinking of myself as, as me. Yeah. What I'm going to say is gender may not be that important to them yeah. um, or to, to the way they think of the um, identity. And um, so the important thing is to um, accept what those students are telling you. You know, the pupil voice is quite key here. Yeah. Um, respect uh, what it is that they say that they want to explore so when they want to explore gender identity that might look like you know wearing different clothes and um, uh, adapting different names and pronouns and it's important to respect that and mm -hmm. refer to them as they want to be referred to so that would be a very key crucial point to start with yeah you know, changing some of the attitudes maybe um, when thinking about LGBT plus inclusion and I, what I also sometimes find is uh, when people think of gender identity, they automatically somehow match it with um, uh, sexuality, you know, that the kind, yeah. of, the kind of underlying fear a little bit, mm. thinking, is this appropriate to talk to them about, you know, when really they just um, going through the gender development period, yeah. children and, you know, growing young teenagers. So um, it's just about being there for them, yeah. uh, establishing and maintaining that trust. And part of it is obviously letting them know that what they say to you is important to you. Yeah. And um, that obviously um, should include, um, you know, validating their views. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. I think it's brilliant. Um, so gender and sexuality can be quite complex topics and you've worked in schools with learners with complex needs how were you able to make these ideas accessible for learners with complex needs because I think that might be an area that some of our listeners will be thinking about if they've got a class of children with complex needs how do they then broach the subject with with them and how do they be inclusive yeah so um basically um I think the the general thing really um or one of the key points to remember here is before even starting any work with um, learners with uh, more complex needs, is that, um, um, you know, there is that general assumption sometimes that uh, learners with complex needs, um, learning needs are asexual, you know, yeah. they, they can't possibly have their own opinions about um, their gender or sexuality. Teenagers with disabilities of all kinds are often infantilized. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, they are and also um um you know so i see my work as very important in terms of um facilitating that student voice which is what i tried to do when i was working as an SEN teacher and we had rainbow clubs and i worked with colleagues uh, some of whom had students with more complex needs yeah and um we included them in different ways really and um, they were still part of the lgbt plus inclusion uh, but for example, we would focus on um, explaining to them the, the 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 fact that being different is okay, and uh, we would introduce activities where they would be able to share about uh, their favorite as their favorite toys or objects that they like to interact with with their peers. Yeah. 
yeah showing each other that this is one way of being different and it's okay to accept each other yeah. and sometimes we have different family members some of us have a parents of the you know same sex um some of us have parents uh, who have um who are gender diverse and it's okay you know to have different families so um you know talking about uh, the family aspect and the fact yeah. that there are families out there um which is something that is part of their life yeah, so yeah. linking it to something that is um um familiar to them familiar yeah help and um talking about diversity um in terms of you know the fact that we are all different and it's okay to be different and also um um it's important to accept each other and none of us are the same um include them in um sensory activities um to do with um the rainbow theme uh, for example um helping them make sensory trails of different colors yeah. that can be um in the classroom environments that they can contribute to so these are some of the things that we did with them yeah so there's always a way to include them yeah so um, the important thing is to remember you know not to exclude them on the assumption that they are sexual they won't understand certain lgbt plus concepts at all so it's better not to go into that at all with them that's yeah. the wrong approach it's exclude excluding them um, automatically right from the start and that's not what we were about uh, in our yeah school. that's yeah. such a good point though i think there's a, a teachers sometimes feel worried about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing so it's easier not to do it at all and that's wrong isn't it it's better to go out of your comfort zone and try and, and learn about these things to make sure you're being you're being inclusive of everybody I, I love the sound of these rainbow clubs can you tell me a bit so if someone's wanting to set one of these rainbow clubs up then what exactly what exactly is it and what did you do so you've touched on a few activities yes so basically uh, the rainbow clubs were about facilitating the student voice yeah and uh, we would start each session with um letting them you know say hi um so and so sometimes we would have you know guests as well joining us so it was always important to start with introductions even though yeah they generally knew each other uh, and they would introduce themselves with their uh, preferred names and preferred pronouns as well and um, um, the other way of running these rainbow clubs was for them to have the um, opportunity not just express uh, themselves in terms of the LGBT plus identities um, and we would discuss all sorts of different uh, topics on inclusion how to be a good LGBT plus ally and things like that. Yeah. It would be a way for them to also talk about policies, um, you know, the inclusion policies uh, that mm -hmm. we would enable them to um, contribute to. So they would yeah. come up with ideas such as um, adapting the uniform policy, um, having um, gender neutral toilet spaces in our school and things like that. Yeah. So they would have a way of basically um how to put it um making they would have a way to contribute to the policies not just you know help with running the assemblies you know they would have a, a way of contributing to the overall aspects of the school life yeah and, uh, so that they will feel their voice is really taken taken seriously and not just during the rainbow club sessions yeah so we, we we ran them to include them more in, in the way we ran the school and organized uh, the, the system in the school and policies and everything else and uh, we would um, also 
inform the parents, obviously, about the work that we were doing. And we would um, find a way of uh, informing the parents through newsletters, for example, yeah. um, about what it was that they uh, they were doing, their children. So it, it was, uh, you know, th the idea was to dissipate any stigma or fear around yeah. LGBT plus concepts. And in the center of it was the student voice. So yeah. we led the students to basically run the Rainbow yeah. Clubs. And they chose the themes they wanted to talk about, um, whatever it was that was on their mind. So it was almost like a therapy sort of. Uh, yeah, it sounds a bit like um, sort of like the student council for inclusion as well. Like it's sort of yes. you know, a part of student council, but just focusing on inclusion, which is lovely. You know, yes. you mentioned about informing the parents. Did you always have um, sort of positive feedback from the parents regarding the Rainbow Clubs? So generally speaking, it, it was. Uh, more positive than not Good. but having said that I think what uh, what contributed to that was the fact that we even before we established these rainbow clubs we obviously informed the parents of yeah. uh, our plans to do that and um, I'm going to talk about um, uh, some of the parents that I had in my own class I mean that were attached to the children I had in my own class and um, there was one parent in particular who was a little bit worried about this mm -hmm. Um, it's not necessarily the fact that she was opposed to it, but, um, you know, when she was growing up, she didn't have this type of curriculum or LGBT yeah. plus information um, as part of her everyday life. So sometimes the attitudes are not based on, oh, I don't want to deal with it, but they're a little bit fearful of it because it's new, if you like, yeah. or it's something that they still need to get their head around. And she was coming from that angle. So she came to talk to me. And uh, she said, well, I'm worried, Claudia, if you're going to, you know, have some LGBT plus um, reading times about LGBT topics, such as LGBT plus families and things like that, that my son might turn gay by the end of these, um, you know, sessions. Literally, she was thinking, um, oh, gosh, <laughs> yes, uh, he would turn gay. And she was very worried about that. So I simply approached it by saying to her, look, I identify as a Christian um, person. Um, and uh, if you, for example, talk to me about your religion, uh, which wasn't Christianity, um, you know, do you think I would, uh, I would convert <laughs> you to end of your, yes, but by the end of your talk, she said, no, of course not. So I said, that is the same thing. We're not trying to convert anyone. We're just trying to basically inform our students about the different types of members of our society that are yeah. out there. Um, and um, just simply give them that information. And I worked in a school for the blind. So it, it was even more important for us to, you know, as educators to deliver that information to these students. Yeah. Because without us, the access to, you know, learning information was very limited. So that is how I approached. Uh, yeah, I love the way you approach that river parent. It's such a, a good way of explaining it. And I'm sure that quote's going to be used on our social media after this um, podcast. That's a fantastic way of explaining it. In the interview with Twinkle Digest a while back, you mentioned that research showed that the curriculum in schools is strongly binary. What did you mean by this? Um, so basically, um, a binary curriculum is one that is um, that makes heteronormative assumptions mm -hmm. and um, that take the stance that um, uh, there is only one correct way of uh, um, you know thinking about gender. So you're either male or you're female, yeah. and um, every choice uh, we make in teachers in teaching, sorry, as educators. Um, for example, when it comes to reading books, posters, yeah. um, um, problem questions in math, even um, topics in history, subjects in arts, 
any of that really um, can have aspects of LGBT plus inclusion. Yeah. So so any any uh, attempt in teaching with regards to these aspects is an opportunity to disrupt um, um, all kinds of norms. And yeah. uh, from um, from ideas about uh, who is um, allowed to even have a romantic partner, and um, let alone you know what gender they are, um, to the dominance of right of white British experience as uh, shared experience for all um, our all of our students yeah um, so um so can you give us some more examples then of ways teachers can make the curriculum more LGBT plus inclusive across different subjects like more practical examples of what they can do right now <laughs> sure um so for example when it comes to English um and literature um um, we could, uh, for example, uh, think of um, designing literacy lessons in a way um, that would make them um, um, consist of um, writing activities about famous autistic and gender non-conforming people, yeah. uh, reading literature on gender diversity and families uh, that break traditional models. Yeah. Um, that's usually a very good uh, way for tackling and preventing bullying as well. Yeah. Um, um, both teachers and parents can, you know, invest in books about characters with uh, different gender identities, for example. Brilliant. Uh, there is a book called I Am uh, Jazz by Jessica Herfeld, for example. It's just uh, something that um, they could read about because it's based on a on a transgender person's uh, life experience. Oh, wow. um, mass and numeracy, I would say, numeracy lessons can be uh, adapted um, in a lot of ways. In, uh, really, for instance, you could include people with different types of uh, gender identity yeah. uh, when designing tasks for your learners, um, yeah. such as collecting and analyzing data, uh, which involves a variety of choices for gender categories like gender fluid, gender non-conforming, agenda, male, female, non-binary, all sorts of categories. Yeah. And when it comes to art and music and other creative subjects um, um, maybe consider learning activities that challenge traditional gender roles uh, for example you can state that um, pink or red um, are not necessarily a girl's color uh, blue and green are not just for boys yeah uh, ballet is not just uh, a girl's activity and so on so engage your learners in creative activities based on the work of um, maybe famous LGBT artists such as Sam Smith yeah. or um, uh, Frida Kahlo, somebody who um, had an LGBT plus identity. She was bisexual and she also had dis a disability. Did she? I didn't know that. Yeah. So she's a perfect example of... Yeah with different you know with the lgbt plus and intersection if you like that you yeah. can use as part of your curriculum um so these are some ideas that you could um try yeah uh, to make it more curriculum uh, sorry to make it more lgbt plus inclusive yeah i think that's really important so what changes to the way teachers deliver rse curriculum would help to address this and support trans non-binary students so for example, um, one way would be to give lots of opportunities uh, for students uh, to talk about people they know in yeah. their lives, families, and the media as well. Mm. 
give lots of uh, varied and diverse examples of experience from popular culture. Yeah. Um, audit the whole curriculum, uh, looking at all the protected characteristics yeah. of the Equality Act 2010, and uh, make sure every single uh, one is actually um, usualized throughout. So yeah. it's made part of the curriculum in all, all, all its aspects. And uh, use neutral language, that's quite mm -hmm. important. Uh, so not gender-oriented language, if possible. And uh, ask, you, ask yourself if you uh, really need to use a gendered uh, term. Yeah, that's a good um, point, because you do slip into it, don't you, when you're teaching like he, yeah, he and definitely. you can just say they, it wouldn't really make any difference, would it? If you, would that be better than if you just said like they, I don't know, the maths problem, they were... I can't think of maths from the top of my head, but they were adding up three plus four and blah, 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 um, saying they instead of she or he as automatic. Yeah. And um, so, for example, when it comes to greetings, instead of saying hello, girls and boys, you can say hello, yeah. everyone. That's yeah. just an example. Um, and um, um, instead of um, girls, open your books, um, uh, you can say class for B, for example. That's such a good <laughs> open point. Yeah. You know, for example, saying uh, things like "I need two strong boys to help me move oh this goodness, table." Yeah. Say, "I need two strong people to help me move the mm. table, please," and things like that. So it's just generally thinking about: Do I need to really use a gender yeah. language here? It can make such a difference to the yeah. inclusion of of your pupils, especially obviously if you've got some transgender pupils or pupils who are um, um, gender neutral and things like that. So. Yeah. yeah gosh that's making me reflect on my own practice when I was teaching and I'm feeling bad that I, I I said things like that you know I said can I have two strong boys to carry something and you think back and you think there was no need I could have just said two strong people couldn't I yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah it does make you so yeah I suppose you're inviting people listening to sort of reflect on their practice as well and think is it necessary to be using those terms can you be more inclusive of everyone in your classroom yeah so um, there seems to be a link between neurodiversity, and this is something that your thesis sort of covers, neurodiversity and autism in particular, and identifying as non-binary or transgender. Can you tell us more about this then? Sure. So um, um, autistic people, um, I would say they're just more resilient to yeah. heteronormativity. Um, they are more likely to feel drawn um towards leaving their own self-evident um, truth rather than bending to the societal will, if you like. Yeah. And, and in this respect, I feel we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so like I said before, they don't necessarily think in binary terms. And um, um, it's they, the idea of sexuality and gender identity is often fluid. Yeah. And, um, this is why it's important that... Um, uh, you know, uh, when as educators, if we work with children or young people who are going through um, gender identity transformation type of period, then we need to support them and, and actually, um, you know, listen to their voice and um, listen to what they're saying to us, how to support yeah. as well. That's quite important because at the end of the day, they are the, the, the experts on their own lives, you yes. know. Um, yeah, that's so important. Yeah. I, re I read an article by Zoe Goldgaud, um, was somewhere under the double rainbow, and she was discussing LGBTQAI plus and neurodiversity and sexuality. And she explained that there's evidence to suggest that neurodivergent people are more likely to be gender diverse and or identify as lesbian, gay, queer, or asexual themselves compared to neurotypical people. And she said a similar sort of explanation to you that 
and I'll quote her. She said, if you are positioned to question the norms, and she says norms like that, um, then you are automatically more willing to embrace the non-conformity gender identity or sexuality. So it's not just that there's more... <laughs> there's more lgbtq people who are autistic but it's that they are more likely to be more open and question the norms and not be not be sort of driven by societal pressures to be different to how they actually are is that right is that what you think as well yeah yeah absolutely um basically there is a much broader span of um identity in autistic and uh, neurodivergent people yeah neurotypical people basically the important thing to remember here i feel is that um there is no set route um with regard to developing gender identities um um that should be the so-called norm yeah uh, sexuality and gender identity they're not necessarily fixed um sexual orientation can change over time and so can gender identity um in in fact um uh, some of the gender identity related changes in neurodivergent neurodivergent people could be to do uh, with the social aspect of things. So, for example, um, if you've been homeschooled, you've had less um, influence uh, from your peers. Um, mm -hmm. And so therefore you have less pressure to fit in. Yeah. So uh, you're more open to exploring yourself and you're less prone to masking because yeah ask um, um you know your peers anymore like let's say if you've been homeschooled and um recently i interviewed some SEN practitioners about um some of the um stigma that uh, some of these children experience and what i found that when they come uh, from mainstream settings and they go to SEN settings they often relate to the teachers uh once they feel they can once they feel that trust established that um they uh, felt the need to mask a lot in mainstream settings yeah. and uh, to fit in and they come with almost like a triple layer of stigma oh, the identities um because in mainstream settings they feel um they stick out a bit more if you like yeah um, you know they have that pressure of um of uh, not only um for them i mean to hide their disability if you like yeah but also they often feel they, they, they're not equal to the other peers, you know, or they're not equal academically. Yeah. They often tend to think of themselves as, as as not very clever, if you like. And, yeah. and so they put themselves down internally. And, and plus, if they have LGBT plus identities as well, to factor in, you know, that that um, double or triple layer yeah. stigma that they feel, you know, is attached to the identity is quite um, demoralizing for them. Yeah, they don't want to be different in so many different ways, I suppose. Yes, it can make them quite um, depressed, really. Um, oh, so, gosh. Um, um, yeah, um, what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, they, they, they just have a different way of thinking. About yeah. It doesn't mean it's the right or wrong way. Uh, but uh, you know, in in mainstream settings, for them, it's quite difficult to yeah. have to explain that. So, um, yeah. often when they're in SCN settings, they they feel more free to be themselves. Yeah. They feel more supported uh, yeah. in certain aspects, and also in mainstream, there's a lot of that um, um, focus on um, the academic side of things. You know, that's not to say that obviously SCN schools don't care about the academic achievements. No. They yeah but um they also in the difference what i'm finding from these interviews is that um you know in essence settings there is more space for them to talk about you know personal development and and uh, the emotional side of uh things as well that is important yeah. 
the emotional well-being, the pastoral care, and all that. And so they, this is often when when they actually feel they 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 more at ease at expressing who they are. Yeah. And um, this is also why I wanted to interview SM practitioners because, um, you know, um, they 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 have an insight that is important to be shared via research. And I feel like. There is uh, not uh, a lot of research that actually involves SM practitioners' voices. No, that's a good point. Yeah, and there's also very limited uh, information when it comes to the views of uh, young uh, people or children with scent as well. Yeah. So this whole overall LGBT, LGBT plus and intersection is very under-researched as an area, mm. um, and um, um, I think. Um, the, the thing you've just touched up on the overlap as well between you know lgbt plus identities and autism and you know other new neuro neurotypes um that needs more attention yeah, yeah. absolutely and, and i recently interviewed the pda society for a podcast episode which was it's been one of our most popular podcast episodes actually even though it's quite a niche area um it's been it's been great actually to see how many people are wanting to learn more about pda and i know it's an area you're particularly interested in um, you recently interviewed, I know as part of your research, you've interviewed lots of SEN practitioners and you've been saying about that, but you recently interest in, interviewed some about PDA as well and gender identity. What did you find out just thinking about PDA then? Yeah, so um, so uh, the, these teachers who work with the PDA children that I interviewed, um, I mean, the, the teachers that I interviewed were re uh, relaying to me um, and a few key aspects that actually were quite similar to each other. They came right. from different settings so that's important to stress here and they were saying to me that um uh some of the things that they witnessed uh, uh is that when when um, a child who is a pda child uh, starts going through um, a gender identity exploration time um they um often mention that um uh, you know, they don't feel like they uh, liked uh, while they've been in certain gender. So ah. in order to be liked by others, they um, want to explore the other gender identity that they feel would suit them more. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's a way, if you like, that's a way of uh, for them to think about it in a black and white sort of logic type of way. You know, yeah. if I'm not uh, this gender and I'll be different gender, maybe I'll get on with people more. Yeah. So that's one reason why sometimes they uh, opt for a different gender identity. Um, but there's other reasons as well. So this is not, you know, for all of them, but yeah. that's something that was um, shared with me during my interviews. Yeah. And, um, they also remarked the teachers that when the child went through the gender identity transition, you know, they changed their hair, the pronouns, names and everything they actually noticed um, a positive change in their behavior as in oh, they, wow. the students felt more calm. Um, so uh, some of them uh, just really find this is me when they mm. change the agenda identity. And um, for some of them, it's just a way of exploring, you know, how it's going to change the um, social relations, if you like, in the environment for them. Yeah. So it's a mixture of reasons why they why they do that. Um, but um, the general thing here is um, that they need to feel that they have that trust with the educators around them yeah. um, to feel supported. Because when they know that um, the educators are aware of their needs and PDA children, you know, have certain needs that we need to be aware of yes. um, 
such as no putting demands on them and things like that that increase the level of anxiety once they know that they can trust that educator they're more likely to you know open up to them if you like uh, yeah. but um, uh, what I was gathering from the interviews general feeling uh, from the educators was that um, the, the gender identity transition was more external rather than the students approaching them to talk about it in some depth yeah and they did they would kind of jump in and out of that uh, theme um, if they felt that the topic was progressing for too long they would stop it because uh, it feel like a demand it became a demand in itself wow. yes and I, I I would love to talk more about PUDA but I will I'll send people over to listen to the other podcast that we've done as well um so we have done a podcast if people haven't listened uh, with the PDA society um on pathological demand avoidance so if you're wanting to find out more about that if you head over to listen to that episode as well because it's been a very popular one um gives you lots of advice and tips on that um last thing I wanted to really ask you Claudia was I saw that you contributed to diverse voices in educational practice which is a book um and in particular I had a had a little spy and had a little look to find out where you were in it and I think it was chapter eight you contributed to am I right yep um voice practices to support LGBTQ plus educators and pupils so I've seen the cover of this book it looks beautiful I've seen on social media you holding a copy <laughs> can you tell me more about this book and what your involvement was apart from it being chapter eight <laughs> uh yeah sure uh, so this book was compiled together uh, by uh, Dr. Alexandra Sewell. She's a registered educational psychologist and, and also a senior lecturer in scent and disability right. uh, um, in, uh, at the University of, um, of Worcester. And um, she uh, basically um, uh, put together a book um, that has views and um, opinions and experiences of uh, many different uh, educators and professionals uh, yeah. who contributed um, um, topics, um, sorry, who contributed, you know, stories basically to do with um, um, uh, diverse voices, um, yeah. the pupils, and they would basically focus on uh, stories um, around um, children and young people who are from the marginalized groups, yeah. such as SEN, LGBTQIA+, and so on. And um, the, the aim of this book is to make these diverse voices meaningfully understood. Yes. And um, um, this is also a workbook, I should say. So oh, is it? I didn't realise that. It's a workbook. Yes, it has well, reflective tasks in it. Oh, so, brilliant. So is that for the students or is that for the practitioners? Um, practitioners? So um, this is just uh, generally for anyone who wants to uh, basically read the book and yeah. just kind of you know put it into good use. Um, it's mostly, I would say, for professionals and educators yeah. working with uh, children from marginalized groups. Uh, but, you know, anyone can have a go. Uh, yeah. Oh, fun. Not... I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. So it's 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 a very uh, fun book, not just to read, but also to engage with. Yeah. And, um, basically, it focuses on advocating for clear and inclusive uh, ethos. Yeah. Uh, and demonstrate and, and the idea is to demonstrate how voice work basically can help uh, to do things such as decolonize the curriculum there's yeah. aspects of that in the book or promote a positive lgbtqia plus environment in school settings and things like that so with That's people yeah, that sounds a brilliant book. Um, and then lastly, if I can just ask you about your work. So you offer SEND related consultation and training to schools and to other types of organisations or individuals with an interest in sort of your expertise, your the SEND and or LGBT plus inclusion for children and young people. Um, 
I'd love so what you can pitch it to people because there'll be people listening wanting to find out more from you so what do you what do you offer and how can people find out more from you um so I basically offer um LGBT plus um inclusion uh staff training for um, um, people who work in um, SEN school settings, for example, or any type of organization yeah. that involves work with uh, pupils with SEND. So it could be also mainstream schools with large yeah, cohorts yeah. of students with SEND. Um, I um, offer um, staff workshop, workshops, CPD days, and the idea is to basically embed organizations with, uh, sorry, provide them, provide organizations with advice on how to embed gender and sexual orientation into the fabric of the organization. Yes. And I also write for other people. So I might write a blog. Um, uh, I might uh, also, um, I have actually produced um, evidence-informed course portfolios for oh, staff development, for um, staff agencies who employ SCN teachers and SCN teaching ass assistants who are being sent into schools to supply for other staff. So just to prepare them, you know, on what to expect in SCN schools and how to work with students with SEND. Um, so... This is the kind of type of uh, work. Yeah. How do you fit all of this in, Claudia, when you're doing your PhD? Let's doing all of that. It's incredible. <laughs> well, the good thing about this is that a lot of it links with my PhD. Yes. So um, whatever additional work I do outside of my PhD, it really goes always comes back to my PhD at the end of the day. So it's all. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all together, isn't it? And it's basically. Being in schools in. And, and talking to SEN teachers and stuff is all part of what you need to feed into what you're doing. So yeah, it's, it helps win-win both ways, I suppose. Well, thank you ever so much for talking to me. You've been a brilliant guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an interesting guest. We've popped some resources that are relevant to this episode in the notes below on YouTube and on the podcast provider. So do have a look at those if you want to find out more about this topic. And thanks again for listening to Sending the Experts with me, Georgina Durant. Catch you again next time.